0: You know, we uh, are, are grateful to get into God's Word together. So if you've got that scripture in front of you, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 22. And if you need the Word, go ahead and raise your hand. Someone will bring a Bible to you. Make sure you've got that so you're properly equipped to, to get into what we're about to get into together. The Lord's Word is speaking to us. And we are grateful for the message that it gives, a message of truth, a message of hope, a message that is encouraging to us and challenging to us all at the same time. We're still in the upper room. But by the end of this sermon today, Jesus and his disciples will have left the safety of that quiet place that that was prepared for them, where they partake of the Last Supper, that final Passover, where Jesus gave them this new ordinance, this this bread and this wine that is representative of his body and his blood that was shed for us. The the disciples um, are going to follow Jesus except for Judas. Judas has his own agenda. He has gone off to do what Jesus knows he has prepared in his heart to do. The rest of the disciples will follow him um, to a place where they have been camping out. Uh, We know that they do not live in Jerusalem permanently. They have been traveling to Jerusalem for this holy week. But while they have been there, Jesus preaches during the day times and then he and his disciples have been pulling back, retreating to the Mount of of Olivet where they're essentially camping in the evening times. And we find here today that they have a certain place that they like to go to to pray. And that's where they're going to go so that Jesus can prepare himself and prepare them for the whirlwind that is about to unfold around them in the next 12 hours as God fulfills His will in the Son. But first, Jesus gives His men one more warning before they depart that upper room. And so we are together in Luke chapter 22. I'm going to be re- begin reading in verse 35. And He said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, Did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what it is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, Here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Here we see a change in instruction. Back in Luke chapter 9, you might recall that Jesus had sent out 70 of his followers in pairs on a mission of preaching and instruction. And he had told them to go into the countryside, into the smaller villages. There was not time enough for him to go to each of these villages. So he sent them out to prepare them, to preach essentially the gospel that he was preaching in these villages himself. And when he sent them out, he gave them very specific and yet peculiar instructions. He told them in verse 3, Take nothing for your journey. Take no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. Essentially, he sends them out on a mission that's going to take them several days. And he says, I'm about to show you that God is in this mission. I'm about to show you that he intends to provide for your needs, to train you to trust in him, that in him you have all that you need. And so he sends them out. And they had everything that they needed. Every little village that they went to, they announced that the Lord had sent them there to preach and and Jewish brothers and sisters had brought them into their homes, had fed them, had provided for their needs, had given them opportunities to preach and to share the gospel. Most responded very friendly. Some responded by rejecting these missionaries. But along that way, everything that they needed was provided for them by the hand of their God. But here the circumstances changed. And so Jesus instructs them to regard their mission differently. Basically saying, last time I told you to take nothing, now I'm telling you it's, it's time to ready yourself. It's time to be prepared. From now on, the disciples must count on having few friends, but many enemies. The climate is about to change drastically and the attitude in Israel towards Jesus, their Messiah, is about to sour in many ways. The world is going to hate them because of their associations with the Son of God. So they must not count on Jewish hospitality supplying their needs as they did before. They're going to be viewed by enemies, or by many as enemies to Israel. You see, a prophecy is about to be fulfilled. The Son of Man is about to be numbered with the transgressors. This is an allusion to the very clear messianic prophecy recorded in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah had spoken so many hundreds of years earlier saying, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. These 11 disciples will soon be without their Savior. Jesus will be leaving. And though he is the servant of the Lord, Jesus will ironically be numbered with criminals and will face a criminal's death. So Jesus is readying himself to die. They should ready themselves as well for his death. And Jesus mentions three things to the men that they should be thinking about bringing on their trip with them or on their journey, wherever the Lord leads them after this time. They should have a money bag. They should have a knapsack. They should perhaps acquire a sword. Now, is there something significant about these particular provisions? Some argue strongly that there is, particularly in in regard to one of the three. Now, have you ever heard the saying, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Hammer is a very simple tool with one primary function. Uh, It channels kinetic energy into the head of a nail so that that nail might be pounded through a surface, usually wood, in order to keep two things together. It's not a dynamic tool. It's not nuanced. It isn't sophisticated. Yeah, it does two things, but really it does one thing and then undoes that thing, if you need to undo that thing, okay? So it does one thing really well. That's all it would want to do if a hammer could actually want to do anything. When you are focused on something, you tend to see the things around you through the lens of whatever you're focused on. Artists who care about beauty look around the world and they see beauty in so many things. They see a a perfect picture. They see a sunset they can paint. They see poetry in motion. To a hungry person, everything they see reminds them of food. Second service will relate to that more than you will because you probably just had breakfast. But when you're hungry, all you can think about, every time you smell food, or every time you see something, I need to get something in my belly. Real estate investors can't help but walk into your house and start to subtly analyze in their minds what that house might do in the market. When you are focused on a particular thing, you tend to see that thing everywhere you go and whatever you do, even in places where it really isn't. And that happens often to the verses that we just read. From the perspective of many conservative people in America, the right to bear arms is a very serious matter. The history of our nation owes much to the ability of its citizens to procure personal firearms and weapons, and should the need arise, defend themselves. And there are plenty of Christians who are passionate about defending that American, American right and advocating for others to take that right seriously. Pastor Larry's church in Nevada, um, Shadow Mountain, he he describes as being like the Wild West. He says that on any any given Sunday, there's no less than a dozen people with concealed carry permits carrying a weapon in that congregation. And so he says it's the safest church in America. I say, it depends on who's carrying the weapon. (laughs) It kind of comes down to that. So I love you all, but there's some of you I don't want you having weapons. (laughs) I don't want to have a weapon myself. So I have to imagine... That when Jesus says things like, when someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn and offer the left cheek to him also. When Jesus says things like, you shall love not only those who are easy to love, but also your enemy, you shall love them. And when Jesus says things like, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. I imagine that the folks who stand firm in their right to bear arms might get a little bit anxious when they hear these kind of things that sound pacified. The overarching message and mentality of Jesus seems to advocate a very peaceful, nonviolent approach to life that doesn't gel well with the fiery sensibilities of many of those who follow Jesus. And then comes along a passage like the passage that we are studying today. And Jesus tells his disciples that they are to prepare, to prepare for hostility. They might want to get their hands on a sword. And right advocates suddenly feel like they have a verse to back up their point of view. Here it is, clear as day. Jesus wants us to own weapons. Jesus is a Second Amendment guy. He's on our side. Not so fast. Not so fast. When you're a hammer, everything tends to look like a nail. When we approach the scripture hoping to find absolute truths that back up our personal leanings, our opinions and ideas, we run the risk of misinterpreting the text so that it will prop us up. When in reality, the Lord might have a much different intention. We approach the throne boldly, but at the very same time, we approach it humbly, knowing that it is a throne and it represents God's authority over us. So the things that we love, the things that we value and desire, must be dictated to us by our king, not the other way around. This passage ends with a sentence that is more ambiguous than it might first appear. The disciples tell Jesus, here are two swords. And Jesus responds by saying, it is enough. Now is this a simple acknowledgement that they are on the right track? Okay, two swords. That's sufficient. Let's go find a knapsack now. Let's put some money in our money bag. That's one less thing that you need. Or is it a frustrated, emphatic statement ending the line of discussion? Here are two swords. That's enough. No more talk of swords. You're missing the point of what I'm saying. It could be either of those things in the Greek. Now, if the heart of what Jesus is trying to communicate is about readying these disciples to be apart from him, to be on their own without his physical presence, preparing their hearts to face the spiritual adversities of the world, and yet the 11 are being caught up in the details of an expression and they are missing the forest for the trees, you could see why Jesus would be unhappy with their response. Now, why do I think it's likely that they're misunderstanding what Jesus is saying? Let's think about it. Logically, two swords would hardly be enough if there are 11 of them and they are to defend themselves against the onslaught of the Jewish people who are going to be angry with them. What good would two swords be? If he's really calling for them to arm themselves in order to defend themselves against the masses who will be angry and who will hate Jesus, they're going to need more than two swords. Two swords would not be enough. When Peter tries to literally use a sword just a few verses later, we're going to talk about this next week, he is reprimanded for it. Jesus doesn't say, see Peter? That's what I'm talking about. Be ready. No, he says, Peter, stop. You're doing it wrong. Thirdly, the gospel, and this is most important, is never to be spread by force according to the commands of Scripture. We have no business putting people to the sword or threatening them with violence so that they will have no choice but to believe in our God. Our command as the New Testament church is to spread this beautiful gospel. And we do that with love. We do that with grace. We do that with preaching. But we do not do not do that with threats of violence. Now, are there are other people who have strong convictions about their beliefs in the world, other religions that are willing to do that, to point the cannon at people so that they will bow to their God. But that is not our calling as God's people. We are to show that we are Christians by our love and we are to approach the people that we want to win to the gospel with a heart of compassion and gentleness, even if they would act as enemies to us. To be sure, those who reject this gospel and come before the Lord without Jesus as their advocate, without the atoning sacrifice of the Son of God covering their sin, they will face a very violent end, one which we all deserve to experience, one which God has every right to dish out to us because we are all rebels against the King. But that judgment is not ours to deliver. Just as his grace is not ours to to disperse, it is his to give. Recall the way that Jesus reacted to James and John in chapter 9 of this gospel we've been studying. When they had been rejected from a certain Jewish village who would not let them lodge there for the night because they knew they were headed to Jerusalem. They wanted to slow them down. The two disciples said in in verse 54 of Luke 9, Lord, do you want us to call fire down to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went out onto another village. We are not here to destroy. There will be a time and a season for destruction, and a champion on a white horse will bring that destruction. But we are not the deliverers of that kind of violence. We are not here to subdue We're not even here primarily to defend ourselves and to protect our rights. Again and again in the New Testament, you see the rights of the New Testament church challenged and jeopardized. And yet these men who are arrested and beaten for their beliefs, for simply preaching the truth, they counted as joy that they were allowed to suffer for the cross. They didn't assemble a, a militia and take down Rome because they were not treated fairly. They simply continued on the mission that they were called to, a mission of love and hope and peace. That does not mean that it is unbiblical to own guns. And that does not mean that I necessarily think it's wrong to stand behind the Second Amendment of of our Constitution, or even that it would be wrong to defend your family with a weapon. But let us just be careful that we don't use God's word to say what, in all likelihood, it is not actually saying, at least not here in this particular passage. There are passages that indicate that force is an appropriate response to evil, but that is not the thrust of this scripture we are studying today, and we should be careful not to make it so. Here we, we are learning that much will be required of Jesus in the hours to come, but much will be required of his followers as well. They're about to see their connections with cultural Israel change forever, and they should ready themselves for that shift. The next section of verses is often preached separate from what we just read, but I think they make most sense when you view them together as a whole. Though we're about to change geographic locations as we read through the story of Christ, the theme still hangs in the air that Jesus is cautioning his men to prepare themselves And he's about to give them a defense that is far more significant than what a sword could ever provide for them. And so in Luke chapter 3, verses um, 21, which we read long ago, we might recall that we find Jesus praying moments before he was baptized in the waters of the Jordan River. And the Holy Spirit alighted on him, and the voice of God declares, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And he goes up from there, and things change. He begins his earthly ministry. He begins to preach. He goes right into the wilderness for temptation. He faces the enemy down, and then he begins to preach in the synagogues of the Judean wilderness. He prays, something major happens, and there is a shift in his ministry. You might recall then in Luke chapter 9, verse 18 through 20, Jesus once again is doing what? He is praying by himself when the disciples come up to join him. And he asks them a critical question at that point. He says, who do the people say that I am? What's, What's the public opinion of Jesus? And they all respond, basically describing how confused the people are. They don't really know what to think. And he says, but who do you think that I am? And Peter speaks for the group and they confess together that they believe him to be the Messiah, the Son of God. From that point on, the ministry changes a bit he begins to confide with his gentlemen, confide in them that he is going to give his life on the cross, that he is going to die as an atoning sacrifice. And there becomes a new level of, of, of intensity as the, talk, the clock begins to tick down to the time he will come to Jerusalem and give his life. Again, prayer, something happens, major shift, in Jesus' life and ministry. This is a device that Luke is using to point out to us when something major is about to happen. For Luke, prayer is often the precursor to a significant shift in the story of Jesus' life and ministry. So it is in the passage that we're studying today that Jesus will again seek the Father in prayer just before one last major shift in his ministry and focus. And so in chapter 22 again of Luke, we're going to continue to read, this time completing verses 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away and knelt down and prayed, And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Think about for a moment, what was the biggest event in your life that you ever had to anticipate? Not something that just happened randomly that you didn't see coming, but what was the greatest event in your life that you knew was on its way? Perhaps it was the birth of your first child. You had no idea what that was going to feel like you had no idea the kind of pain. You've seen it on TV time and time again. You expect to cry. You expect to, to go in through agony. Maybe you expect to get the first medication you can to try to numb that. But maybe it was that, thinking about having a child, experiencing childbirth. Maybe it, was, maybe it was graduating from college and the responsibility of getting all your requirements done on time so that you can finish up and walk with your graduating class. Maybe it was your wedding day. Got a couple of folks in here who are getting ready for that right now. The day when you're going to join together with that woman, with that man whom you have come to love so passionately, who will be God's provision for you. Maybe it was a championship game, something that you had worked so hard to achieve and now this team that you're a part of has a chance to, to be the best. How did it affect you? How did it affect your heart and your mind as you approached that incredibly important event in your life? How did you process it? Here we see Jesus knowing that the culmination of his earthly life is just hours away. What does he do with his time? He separates himself apart and he seeks the Father in prayer. And he asks that his disciples do the same thing. Their greatest protection is not supplies. It is not swords. It is not the money bag. It is prayer. That is what is going to prepare them better than anything else that they can collect on this world. Now in the hours leading up to his arrest, what we find Jesus doing is praying. And it is what Jesus instructs these men to do as well. It should be our defense church as we prepare ourselves for the struggles and temptations of this world. Don't forget Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, which reminded us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and against blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Who is our enemy? Our enemy is not something physical, what, what are we up against? We're not up against so much a material battle. Our struggle is against forces that are real and powerful, but they are of a spiritual nature. This statement that the Apostle Paul makes is a statement of quality. It is not a definitive statement of exclusivity. What that means is we do actually battle against some material things as well, right? Some of us here today are battling against cancer or sickness. Some of us are battling against the prospects of poverty, not having enough money to fulfill our daily needs. Some battle against addictions and the incredible gravity of sin. Some battle against afflictions and hatred. Some battle loneliness. Some battle doubt or worldly guilt. We do battle some material things, but our victories in those battles mean nothing if the war fought for the spirit is being neglected. Our true battle. The most important battle, the battle we should concern ourselves with most, is never fought with a sword. Our Savior's consistent desire is to help His followers live spiritually minded and not materially minded. It is one of the great challenges of the nation that we live in, that there are so many materials all about us that there is so many prospects of luxury and comfort and satisfaction in things that we spend far too much of our time thinking about, consumed with, and focused on that which will be destroyed by moth and rust and time. And we ignore what truly matters, which is the spiritual battle, that we are to fight, fight daily, that we are to fight for our righteousness, to fight for our standing with the Lord God, to stand alongside the powerful truth of his word so that we are not deceived into thinking and loving what does not really matter. When they arrive in that quiet place on the Mount of Olivet, of Jesus gives them some very basic instructions. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He has recently prayed on behalf of Peter, hasn't he? that Peter would not lose his faith as the enemy tries to tempt him and pull him away from the group of disciples that follow Christ. And by these words, we come to understand a very important component of prayer. As followers of Jesus, we must pray anticipating the battle. Our prayers should not just be about what is currently going on in our lives. When we come to the Lord God, it should not just be our list of needs right now. God, meet my physical needs, meet my health needs, meet my monetary needs. But instead, our prayer should be infused with with a desire to be ready, to anticipate this difficulty that we will face as saints living in a fallen world filled with sin. When we get on our knees and we seek the Lord out, we should be asking the Lord God, God, ready me for the battle. Prepare me for what I'm up against. And let me not be deceived into thinking that just because I'm yours, I won't be up against anything major. Following Christ is not a guarantee that your life will be smooth sailing, comfortable, easy, always blessed. At least not in the ways that the world thinks of blessing. But when we pray to our God, we should go to him thinking about this battle, knowing that it is our calling as pilgrims to be facing opposition day in and day out, and asking God for us to be ready so that when it comes, we are not caught off guard. A stumbling block that you see isn't a stumbling block, is it? It's a hurdle. Step over it. If you're ready for it, it's not as likely to catch you off guard. Jesus doesn't tell them to pray that they wouldn't encounter temptation, but that they wouldn't enter into it. The traps are there. We're going to encounter them. But we can avoid much heartache and error if we can work on identifying those traps, battling against those traps, learning how to more effectively survive their wiles by leaning on the source of strength that provides for us, our Savior. And those are all key purposes to the life that we are called to live here as pilgrims on earth. And so he tells them to pray. And then he does the exact thing that he tells his disciples to do. After removing himself from their immediate presence, what does he do? He bows. He puts his heart and his mind on the Father, and he prays. Now, you might take note that if you were a Jewish man at the time of Christ, that's not how you would normally pray, bowed to the ground with your face low. Typically, you would pray like this, with arms outstretched in a standing position. That's how the Jewish people prayed primarily in the time of Christ, But what we see in Jesus is a reminder of the kind of praying that Jesus did. The book of Hebrews describes it in chapter 5, verse 7. The writer of that book says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. May our prayers be bold as we come to that throne, but let us never lose that sense of reverence. We demand nothing from Christ. We come to Him humbly. As even Jesus Himself, who was without sin, came to the Father, bowing low, knowing that the Lord God was his only hope to survive what he was about to experience. The praying that Jesus did in the garden was heartfelt. It was honestly emotional. And it was reverent to the Lord at the same time. Though Jesus was still fully God, he had determined in his time on earth to approach the Father in heaven as you and I would approach him from a position of complete dependence. And so he did not supply his own needs. He did not call down legions of angels to defend him, even though he could have. Rather, he showed us how, he must, how we must trust in God to meet our needs. In the generosity of the Father, in the Father's perfect will, He did just that for Christ. And here is what Jesus famously prays in those intense moments. He says in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Please, do not make the mistake of thinking that this was a prayer of cowardice on the behalf of our Savior. Jesus would take upon himself the sins of countless criminals. He would become detestable to God, to the Holy Spirit, and to himself. No one could face that kind of anxiety without struggle. And it's a desire that we cannot fully relate to. In In recording the same event, Matthew 26, 38 uh, has a few more of Jesus' words in this moment. In, it says in verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. You might have said, my sadness is killing me at some point in life, but that almost happens to Jesus here in the garden. He is so racked with anxiety for the fact that he, having lived perfect for eternity, is about to take the weight of sin onto himself that he goes through physical anguish along with his spiritual anguish. There is a condition known as hematohydrosis. It's a documented medical situation where a person is going through such intense anxiety and stress. It's very rare, but it's not so rare as to not be documented. There are pictures of it. There are cases that have been studied in depth. Someone is so intensely stressed out that the capillary blood vessels beneath their skin that feed their sweat, their sweat glands begin to rupture and blood flows into the sweat glands and as that person sweats, blood becomes mingled with their sweat and they begin to sweat it out. And it only happens under extreme physical or emotional stress. For Jesus to take the sin upon himself of all all those who would would trust in him, was such a serious thing that the droplets of his own blood mixed with sweat are dripping from his face as he prays intensely on this matter. It's a very, very critical physical condition and and, and it can mean that a person's close to death. You and I are born with sin. We've never experienced a moment without it. Jesus never knew it, not from experience. He knows of it. Obviously, he's the Lord God, but he had never committed sin himself ever. Our struggle against sin is a struggle against what we are. For Jesus, to struggle against sin is to struggle to become what he is not, He asks God if if God would be willing to remove the responsibility from his shoulders, this part of the plan of salvation that will cause the one who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. He didn't desire to be sullied like that. He did not want to become filthy and detestable to the Lord. He didn't desire to be cast into that dark shadow. He hates sin. Holy God cannot participate in sin. He cannot even bear to look upon it. For the Father, with whom Jesus had enjoyed eternal unity, for the Father to turn his face away from Jesus was greater than any of the physical pain that Jesus knew he was about to endure. It wasn't the crown of thorns that made him sweat blood because of his intense anxiety. It wasn't knowing that he would have his arms pinned to wooden cross. It wasn't the lashes that he would endure or even the heckling and the spitting and the insults that were hurled his way. It was knowing that he was going to have to take upon himself that which is detestable to God, our very sin. Pastor John MacArthur of Grace Church down south, he preaches it like this. This is incomprehensible to him. This is repulsive to him. This is foreign to him. He's not like us. He's not fighting against sinful impulses to be holy. He's fighting against holy impulses to be made sinful. Satan is tempting him to cling to holiness just as he did when he tempted him in the wilderness. Cling to the right. Be satisfied. Satan wants him to avoid the cross. Satan knows the only way for you and I to be saved is if we have a perfect sacrifice paying the penalty that we deserve to pay to God. If Christ doesn't go to the cross, you and I have no hope. And so Satan, the crafty devil that he is, is trying to tempt Jesus into saying, you're too holy for this. You don't want to experience sin. You're perfect and pure. Don't be defiled by this. Oh, that we, when we pray, would love holiness and hate sin as our Savior does, as our Savior hated sin when He prayed on our behalf. Do you hate your sin, Christian? Do you let yourself see its true ugliness to the point where it becomes repulsive to you? The world is trying to convince you otherwise. There is a comprehensive campaign to make you at ease with your iniquities, To make you believe that it's not really a big deal, don't worry. But drawing near to God will help you overcome that propaganda. When you see His holiness and compare your feeble attempts at righteousness to His true righteousness, you see how filthy you are in comparison, and it's shameful. Jesus hated the thought of bearing sin and becoming sin, as 2 Corinthians 5 says that He did. It agonized Him. If you're struggling today with something like gluttony, you've got to learn to hate the way your overconsumption is hurting the body that God has given to you. You've got to learn to detest the way that it is ruining your temple, the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. You've got to get to the point where you hate that food has become like a God to you, like an idol that you almost worship, that you must have it for comfort and satisfaction when Jesus is the true satisfaction that we all need. He is the only God that we should worship. If you struggle with pornography or sex outside of the context of marriage, have you let your heart see the insult that is to true agape love? Have you allowed yourself to honestly be disgusted by the mockery that it makes of marriage and how the secrecy of that sin causes you to live dishonestly with those who you care about? If you struggle with pride, the Holy Spirit must help you reject the impulse to exalt yourself, to put your desires above everyone else's, to put your desires even above God's desires. Ask the Spirit to help you hate that inflated view of yourself, to embrace a right view of man, that you are significant only in so much as God is reflecting His own image in you. When you hate sin, you will find yourself with only one option, to surrender humbly to God's will and to trust Him to kill that sin. Invite Him to put it to death through Jesus Christ. Pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and return Him to the rightful place in your life so that you might embrace His kingdom over every aspect of who you are, especially those parts which you have been holding back from Him. Jesus knew that God was not willing to remove the cup. He wasn't trying to figure out God's plan. He had known it since the beginning of existence. He knew that it was the will of the Father to punish the sins of the elect completely and thoroughly through his body. But in praying this prayer, Jesus set such a valuable precedence for us. He prays here what in Matthew 6 he had taught his disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that needs to be the overarching, dominating desire of our heart when we get on our knees and pray, friends. Not that we would somehow convince God to give us what we think is best for us, but that when we come to him in prayer, that he would convince us that what he wants for us is what we need and what we are best blessed to receive. Jesus is so focused on the spiritual battle at hand that the physician Luke records that he bled for us even before others shed his blood. He understands the weight of the moment and prayer was a non-negotiable part of his preparation as he readied himself to endure that cross. But as he rises from his vowed position, He sees that the 11 disciples did not face the battle with the same focus and faith that he just faced it with because his disciples are sleeping. Luke is actually quite merciful here in his account. The other gospels record that Jesus wakes them After he finds them asleep and he urges them to pray and then he goes off and prays more and then he comes back and they've done the same thing. They have made the same mistake several times. He wakes them and urges them. Luke is merciful and mentions it only one time. But the irony here is great. Jesus is about to give his life for them and they cannot give their time and attention for him. In their sorrows about what they're about to experience, they turn to sleep so that they can avoid the anxiety of the moment. <clears throat> the disciples' failure, though, <clears throat> excuse me, the disciples' failure is almost appropriate. It illustrates our absolute inability to contribute to our own salvation, doesn't it? We need Jesus to intercede for us. We cannot do it for ourselves, we will not do it for ourselves. He must offer Himself, and He must do it to save a people who have nothing to offer but their sin. Jesus did not need their help to prevail anyway. The Father provided that for Him. Look back at verse 43. Though Jesus had not called down legions of angels upon Himself, He did what you and I do. He prayed and appealed to the Father, and look what the Father did for Him. And there appeared to Him an angel from heaven strengthening Him. Now, we don't know exactly how that strengthening happened. We don't have the details of it, but we are made very clear that the Lord gave Christ what he needed in that moment and fortified his heart. Only two times between Jesus' death and his, um, between Jesus' birth and his death did angels appear. He could have called down angels at any time, but we only see these angels intervening twice, and they were both initiated by the Father, not by Jesus. First, we see it in the temptation in the wilderness. After Jesus had faced Satan, had experienced those three temptations and he responded in, in kind with Scripture and had bade Satan to flee from him, he was exhausted, he was very hungry, and angels come and minister to him, says the book of Mark. We see it here the second time after the temptation in, in, the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he goes to the cross. Two temptations, two interventions by angels. We often think of angels as protecting us from our sickness, from poverty, and from misfortune. Jesus was protected from temptation. He was ministered to in times of being afflicted spiritually. We do not fight our battle against flesh and blood, brothers and sisters. Jesus teaches us how to fight our battles. How do we stand a chance against our enemy? Apart from the power of God, we stand zero chance. This is why we must pray. This is why we must seek Him. This is why the posture of our life must be bowed before the throne of our Lord God. And this is why Jesus prayed and showed us that prayer is one of our greatest provisions. Would you please bow with me as we do exactly what we were reading about just a few moments ago. Lord God, thank you for being a God who is willing to bow to humble himself, to condescend and come to earth and take on limited human flesh so that we might be redeemed from our sin. God, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the one victory we can hope to have over the the iniquity and the rebellion that our hearts so naturally are drawn to. So we thank you, Lord God, for his powerful work. And we ask that you would help us to understand that prayer is never a waste of our time if we have our minds and hearts fixed on you if we are present and, and meditating on your power and on your truth, I pray, Lord God, that we would not omit prayer from our busy schedules, that we would not allow this pace of life that is so common around us to dictate how we live our lives. Lord God, let us take time to seek you in prayer. Let us do it consistently, Lord God. Let us do it expectantly, expecting not only to experience affliction in this world, anticipating the temptations of our, of our enemy but also anticipating that you will provide what we need to escape those temptations, to stand as righteous because of what Christ has done for us. Lord God, help us to have the right attitude towards sin. We are called to be a people of love, but we do not love sin. We see what it has done to our Savior who loved us so much. We see the effects that it has on our lives, on our families, on our nation. Lord God, please rid us, rid us of this sin. And there is no other way to do that than through the gospel message. And so let it be preached in power today. May many people give their life to you in response to this message, maybe even for the first time, Lord. May they come to trust you. I pray, Lord God, that this church would be able to see disciples being made, Lord. May you turn our hearts from stone to flesh. May you write your law upon that soft heart and help us to walk in a way that glorifies this Jesus was willing to bleed and die for us. You are holy God and your plan is perfect and so we rejoice in it today in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.